0: Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest-growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, April 11th, 2022. In honor of our two-year anniversary, we decided to drop back-to-back COVID podcasts, both with Emily Oster. Last week, we redropped our very first podcast from April 2020. Emily was our first guest, and we talked about pregnancy in the land of corona. For those of you who joined us after the first podcast, I hope you got a chance to listen to it last week. It was really interesting to hear our conversation about COVID two years ago, right when COVID started. For today's podcast, Emily agreed to come back and to talk about COVID in 2022, looking back and looking forward. We go into a lot of questions and topics that everyone seems to be talking about. Where do we get it right? Where do we go wrong? And most importantly, when can I finally take my mask off on an airplane? Lots of good stuff. And as all of you know, Emily is awesome. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy hearing her take on all this. As a reminder to all of you, we have a second podcast that drops every Thursday, and it's called High Risk Birth Stories. Look for it. We started it a year ago, and it's also gaining a lot of traction in the podcast space. If you enjoy this podcast, you will probably enjoy high risk birth stories as well. Feel free to check out any of the birth stories told over the past year and follow us for the new ones. All right. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Emily, welcome back to the podcast our favorite guest. How you doing?
1: I am good. I love to be here.
0: You were the first guest on the podcast, the, the Maiden Voyage, the very first guest two years ago last week. As I told you offline, we did redrop our first podcast so people can hear uh, our predictions about COVID. Now, people don't do that, like sportscasters. They don't go back and, you know, say, oh, this is what I predicted for the NFL season because they're always wrong. But we were right. We nailed it. Good work.
1: And that's why we're releasing it. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And we said, no, nah, this is COVID will
0: be gone in two weeks. We would never redrop that. So it's interesting. I mean, the things, you know, when we were speaking about it, I know that you have had a lot of conversations in your life about COVID in the past two years. So you may not remember this one in particular, but clearly there's some things that are very different now, compared to then, uh, I would say most notably the vaccines, uh, which is a game changer, obviously. But the interesting thing is, you know, I was listening to it. There was arguments, you know, about masking, about lockdowns and restrictions, about, you know, data surrounding who gets it and who doesn't. And this was like two weeks into it. And now we're two years into it. And we're arguing about the same things.
1: True. Although I was reflecting on uh, on sort of how the spring of 2020 felt relative to now and on the one hand I'm constantly thinking I wish we knew more now like I like we could have better data there's information that we're that we're missing but that reflection also reveals there's a lot that we know now that we that we didn't know then so it, it we did the same hike that we had done sort of in in kind of March of 2020 last weekend and my husband was reminding me that when we did that hike in in March of 2020 like everyone was wearing a mask outside on the hike. And like, at some point we encountered some other, you know, small child and my, my then four-year-old yelled social distancing (laughs) when the kid got, got too close. And so I feel like, okay, we look, we have sort of evolved some of our understanding since then about things like outdoor transmission, but there's, there's a lot we don't understand. And as you say, a lot of these debates feel like the same debate that we were having two years ago.
0: Yes. I'm curious, how do you feel about COVID now compared to let's say a year ago when the vaccines were first coming out and two years ago when it was just starting. Like what what are the major things that you think are, you know, different and how you think about it?
1: I think the the kind of uncertainty, the enormous uncertainty that been inhabited basically every moment of the sort of March of 2020 seems dialed down. Mm-hmm. I will say relative to March of last year some ways more existential angst or worry about the the long-term effects of the pandemic you know i got i was looking at my vaccine card for something i got my first dose of the vaccine on march 11th uh and my second on on april 1st of 2021 and i i i sort of remember that moment as feeling like okay like we're like we're going to move to the next phase Parts of that feel true now. I mean, I think even, even more true because vaccines are better and because more people have natural immunity and all kinds of other things, we have better treatments. But I think it's coming into focus very much for me, all the ways in which society is going to be experiencing the impact of this pandemic for a very long time, not not just the impacts of the people that we lost, but the impacts of the some of the social breakdown. So in that sense, I, I almost am, am more worried, even if I'm Less thinking, less about the the virus. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, what we what do you mean specifically by the social impact? You mean like school closures and sort of that type of stuff?
1: So y- yes, sort of. So I mean, you know, the impacts of school closures on kids, but I also mean the the mental health impacts of this kind of state of heightened alert mm-hmm. for so long, and the conflicts that have arisen about how people are dealing with this and and you know maybe i see more of this or you and i see more of this because of where we are and so i sort of wonder if i were in a place that had been less covid careful like you know oklahoma or or north dakota like maybe i would i would not be feeling i would not feel like this but here it feels very much like you know as my kids school takes off their masks we sort of reveal the the vision, the fissures, whatever, whatever word I'm looking for, we reveal the, the the fractures between the people who are not ready to do that and the people who are. And those reflect a lot of other fractures in society. And I, I, I don't know, feel very anxiety provoking.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember talking about this, uh, I mean, probably about a year ago, plus how when the virus came out, it's it's a serious situation obviously like this is like a big deal this virus like it was not it was not to be ignored right it was very dangerous to people a lot of people died it had a really really big impact and so sort of at the beginning phase the messaging is always focused on we need everyone to know that this is serious right and so all of the messaging is focusing on the dangers the dangers the dangers and that's both on a sort of strategic level, right? From a healthcare, from government, you know, people need to know that like you guys stay indoors or you could be, you know, killed or you could, you know, like these are really important. And then sort of the media picks up on that. Well, this is like, this is big stuff. This is juicy. So they, you know, everyone focuses on all the horrible dangers of it. And while there's, you know, there's reason to do that, obviously, because maybe it's going to save lives. Maybe it's going to get people who wouldn't otherwise take it seriously, you know, I think I think of the movie Independence Day when these big aliens are hanging over the city and people are like partying underneath the ships and someone has to tell them, like, dude, this is not safe. Like, get out of there. Yeah. And so there's importance to that, but there's a massive, massive repercussion to that in that you're gonna freak people out forever. And so when people think they're gonna drop dead if they get near the virus, yeah, there's a lot of people who are gonna never wanna take off their mask and there's just no getting around that. It's very hard to balance making people aware of how serious this is with okay maybe there is a time when we could take off our masks and go inside and shake hands and hug again and since there's you know so many people who have different psych- you know psychologies you're not going to get it right and some people are going to be not scared enough and some are going to be too scared
1: yeah and i think part of what i find a little you know frustrating about some of the of the messaging that we the sort of some of the evolution of the messaging is there is a sense in public health sometimes that we have this one lever, which is trying to make people take things seriously. And that's a lever that we use with frequency and a lever we're very comfortable with. And when we observe population writ large, not doing all the things that we think would be important, there is a tendency to just ratchet up that lever. But what happens then is that the people who are already very anxious are then doing more, whereas the people who are not anxious are are not, who, are, who weren't listening in the first place are not listening any more than they would. And right. that's how you get to a situation where there's a lot of people, you know, and this was true certainly, maybe it's less true now because so many people had Omicron, but the sort of, in the in the kind of period in which we were we were sort of pre-Omicron, there was a real opportunity for a lot of people to get vaccinated. And getting vaccinated really would have saved a lot of people from dying. And yet the messaging, how in whatever way the messaging came out, one of the results was those people didn't get didn't get vaccinated. but some people who were already vaccinated a bunch of times became afraid to, you know leave their house uh, again, even though and and are still afraid to to leave their house or to go to the grocery store or to eat inside a restaurant even though at this point, you know, those risks are, are really small.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I agree with that, that people are already fearful of getting more fearful. And I think yeah. one of the other things is, and this is something that you mentioned, again, two years ago when the, when the pandemic was just starting, was that one of the issues with restrictions is there's almost like a breaking point that you can sort of do a certain amount, but once they get too restrictive people then blow it off right they just they say all right mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not doing any of this stuff and so if you give people sort of like a small and dosed reasonable restrictions you may get you know some follow you know some people are going to follow you they're going to you know comply or whatever it might be but if you say all right you can never leave your house for the whole year people are just like all right screw it. I'm leaving I'm walking out and it's hard because you can't yet you to know exactly where their right point is and I do think that we probably as a society went overboard and that's same thing why, like why did so many people not get vaccinated and i think you know, there's always conspiracy theorists, but they've always existed. We've always had people who didn't vaccinate and they were the small segment of society. But I think once the government comes in and says, we're going to mandate it, everyone's getting it, we're going door to door and inoculating people, people dig their heels in and they're like, no, not me, you know? And then it becomes yeah. a fight as opposed to just, all right, listen, we think everyone should get vaccinated. It's available everywhere. I think the numbers would have been higher.
1: I agree with that. I mean, it's, it's hard to know in some sense that if I think about sort of the two biggest failures, the two things that we did, you know, that we should have done differently or could have gone better, I guess. You know, one is the one is testing infrastructure, which took a very long time to to sort of ramp up to where we needed it to be. But the other is the is the kind of not the development of the vaccine, which was extraordinary, or the initial rollout, which I thought was very good, but the the way that it got politicized. And I'm not sure how much of that was an error of messaging or how much of that was you know, the fault of, of you know, particular in, individuals. But I don't think that, that pushing people or shaming people was an especially helpful message. I also think, you know, the reality is that there's a lot of variation in risk across individuals. And we probably did too little boosting in nursing homes and too much emphasizing of, you know, additional doses for for like lower risk groups. And, and that feels That feels to me like a continuation of a failure we had all along, which was not taking the age gradient enough into account, not recognizing that the number one comorbidity for serious illness from COVID is being old. Just like that's just so vastly the number one above any other thing. Right. Uh, And that that didn't get you know, that that often didn't get as much attention as it should.
0: Right. And we knew it immediately. Because again, we, immediately. We, we were talking about this, you know, in the end of March of 2020, like literally like risk factor being older. And in terms of everything, vaccinating, in terms of restrictions, masking, all these things, it, when you do it, you know, to everybody, again, some people you're not doing enough and other people you're doing too much. And I, yeah, I agree. I think that was a pretty big mistake. And it wasn't that hard. I mean, it's not so hard to differentiate by age, right? Everyone knows their age. It's not that complicated. No, and,
1: and, you know, some places it was sort of one of the most interesting things that happened in the pandemic was looking at the initial r- rollout of the vaccine across states. So, you know, if you think about back to, you know, a year ago, or a little bit more than a year ago now, when states had to make decisions about who to prioritize for for vaccinations, there was a lot of distinction between, you know, were you going to prioritize people who had, you know, a lot of in-person contact or or older people, and how were you going to titrate that? And I remember talking to, you know, one of the most impressive people I work with in the last year, who was the, the kind of head of, of everything COVID related for the state of West Virginia, who basically, I think knowing that he was going to get a fair amount of, of kind of vaccine resistance, and they had a huge amount of hesitancy, he went in initially with just this message of like, old people, like old people, old people, old people, mm-hmm. and just telling people, you know, the like, if you're 80, like your risk is, you know, 1200 times as high as someone who's 20, you know, and just emphasizing that over and over again and, and kind of getting things back to their nursing homes. And actually their initial vaccine rollout to old people was really extraordinary. Then they ran into the the kind of left right bench of their state and things went worse. But it was initially good. <laughs>
0: yeah, it was initially good. Does I'm curious, does the virus concern you moving forward?
1: In the same existential sense that right. I think it probably concerns almost everybody, which is like we could get a new variant. The new variant could be different. I will say that the virus has evolved tremendously since the sort of wild type and it is kind of amazing that the vaccines particularly the mrna vaccines and you know prior infection has provided such good protection against serious illness even in the face of a vastly mutated virus and it just suggests that like T cell immunity is pretty good that like the sort of COVID funding appears to be disappearing which seems like Bizarre, uh, given that, like all seasonal respiratory viruses, we should expect to see a spike in the fall and winter of next year. I mean, even without a new variant, with waning immunity, everything else. I mean, that's that's going to happen, and and probably it will be good to be like prepared. Yeah. I think.
0: <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't know. That's 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 the the Girl Scout in you coming out. Yeah, exactly. You're probably good uh, to be prepared. You know, Someone I said know. that I once. Like, I, it's so interesting. I think that. Omicron, in a certain sense, was kind of like a big bummer, right? Because this variant came out and all these people are getting COVID, even those who had it before, even those who were vaccinated, even those who are young and healthy. But on the other hand, I think it really shifted so many people's perspective about the virus to, oh, like this could be something that behaves like a cold, a flu, where a bunch of people get it and then it blows through and most people are perfectly fine afterwards. And I think that it actually kind of, you know, people like loosened up a bit after Omicron went through and, and it wasn't so it wasn't the same thing as like the Delta wave last summer.
1: Yes, because so many, I think at that point, also a lot of people who had been very, very cautious leading up to that point, who had effectively done, you know, everything, like had had been really cautious about avoiding the virus, had been, you know, boosted and, and fully vaccinated and everything, then then got it. Yeah. and. <laughs> you know, and I think it, it partly sort of reveals some of just the inevitability of, of respiratory viruses. And I think partly it revealed to people that, okay, like I'm, you know, I'm lucky. There was a frame there, which was like, I'm really lucky that I was vaccinated. And also, you know, this happened and like, it wasn't great. You know, I had COVID, it was like not a great week, but it was also, you know, it, it was, it was okay. It behaved sort of like a, a flu, uh, maybe a mild flu. and And I think that, that changed a lot of people's Mindset around both the inevitability and the and just the you know the reality of what it would be like once you were vaccinated,
0: yeah, I mean listen we're in the hospital, a hundred percent of people are vaccinated and wear masks, and it blew through the hospital. I mean so many yeah. people got omicron these are again everyone's for the six months prior, no one got anything, and it just shows you that there's there's only so much you can do for these things and it it also you know i was on a I was on a flight, I flew to Israel last week and the whole process, I'm like, what are we doing here? Like, who who is in charge of all this? This is like the most ludicrous thing ever. Everyone, before they got on the plane, has to get a PCR test in the US. All right, fine. You don't want someone getting on the plane with active COVID. Whatever. I mean, OK. Everybody on the plane has to wear a mask the entire time, except when you're eating and drinking, right? Because at that time, COVID can't be spread. Right, play, no you
1: know. yeah. When they yeah. serve the drinks, just like it knows if yeah. it, it yeah. knows the like COVID knows that that's really me, Tyree. Yeah, it's a it's a break. Uh, it's like when you're playing tag.
0: It's it's like a safety, you know. And it's like no, no, I'm I'm on safety. I can't be tagged. I can't be out. You know, same thing like the airport. Everyone has to wear a mask in the airport, except when you're all the people sitting down and eating, right? So twenty percent of the people in the airport don't a mess on. You can't get COVID that way. And then we land in Israel, and you have to get. PCR when you land so that they don't you're not in lockdown. And then to come back to the US, you have to get an antigen test. And then the same thing with the masking and this on the plane, except you're eating drinking. And I'm just like, this is the biggest waste of time for everybody. Like, what like why isn't it just optional? Like if you want to wear a mask and protect yourself, wear a mask. God bless you. Put on an N95, put a shield over your head, do whatever you want. But if someone's like vaccinated it's like, why am I wearing a mask, you know, 85% of the flight? It's just, it doesn't make any sense. Yet we're all doing this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the counter, to, like to you know, to push back on that, I think that the counter that people would say is, look, you know, the the world contains vulnerable people, whether it is you know immunocompromised individuals or you know kids who are not vaccinated, who I think we both agree are not in the vulnerable space. But you know, this is the this is kind of the the argument that then you know this is all sort of that that making it. What you're advocating in some ways is is really a kind of like totally individualistic approach to say, look, now we have good vaccines. We have, you know, excellent. Everybody has access to like a well-fitting N95 mask and fully full vaccines. And you can choose to protect yourself to whatever degree you want. And, you know, that is an individual choice the way there's a million individual health choices, right? Like you choose, you know, whether what kind of diet you eat or you choose, you know, what kind of other, you know, health care care you get. But then there's this this piece of it, which is, well, what about the what about the immune compromise? What about the um, you know, what about people who who need your protection? I, you know, for me, some ways I find that argument compelling, but I also think it puts an awful lot of of onus on individuals that should be on some, you know, gov- some sort of broader governmental body uh, that it's not really the job of, of individuals to to be fully responsible for protecting, you know, vulnerable people. I also think that, you know, the marginal impact of, of kind of you wearing a mask on the airplane, except when you're eating and drinking, on, you know, deaths in a nursing home is pretty, pretty minimal at, at this point. But I think that's kind of where we could we could do better to try to either make clear to people or, you know, think about how we're protecting these other these other groups. And by the way, that is a problem that was true before. Right. So I, yeah. mean, I think that's kind of like if you were like a like a, a sort of late stage cancer patient who's on immunosuppressants, you were vulnerable to infection before COVID. Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah. And it, like every like many other things, COVID has revealed like, boy, it would be you know great if we had better ways to, to protect people in those uh, in those situations. But it's not different than it was before, really.
0: Yeah. And no, I think that's one of the big changes that if you look at, you know, like you said, someone who's borough rural rural because of. Whatever medical conditions, because of medications they take, because of their age, you know, two years and a month ago when they got on an airplane, same problem. They could get a cold, they can get a flu, they can go get adenovirus, they can get anything, you know, potentially. And we weren't telling everyone then to wear masks. And so I think now sort of masks became sort of acceptable in a certain sense. And now it's hard to take these things away. But the real question, sort of scientifically, is all right, so if I'm someone who's vulnerable and I'm vaccinated, and I'm wearing an N95 mask, what is the relative risk to me if the person next to me is or isn't wearing a mask? And it's probably pretty small, right? Again, if they're wearing a mask 85% of the time, except when they're eating and drinking or something like that. And as so it's what is the what is the benefit to that person versus, you know, the, the inconvenience to 400 people you know, on the plane. And, you know, these, uh, there's no right answer to how you balance those things. I'm not claiming there is I'm just saying that's, that's a complicated calculus that's been made forever. And this is just different, how we're, we're falling on a different side of the line now than we ever did before. And I think that's jarring to people.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, maybe, you know, maybe part of the answer is, well, we should have been, you know, we should have been, we were kind of in the wrong place on the line before, and that we should have been more you know, we should have been more conscious about this. And I think it will be true almost indefinitely that people are gonna be more conscious about about the choices they make that would that would spread illness to other people in a way that is that is probably really good. So, you know, the kind of like send your kids to school when they're a little bit sick or go to the office when you're a little bit sick. My guess is that will be dialed way down mm-hmm. now. And that just the sort of social acceptability of saying, you know, look, I have a little bit of a cold. I'm at like let's zoom the meetings today. That's going to feel, I think, you know, two and a half years ago, people would have been like, sorry, you have a little cold and you want to like move our meetings to the phone. You know, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Whereas now people will be like, oh, thanks so much. Like that's, that's great.
0: Yeah. Well, some would say that's great. And some would say, all right, now this person just doesn't want to come into work. I said, you're going right. to get both. Know, yeah. Right? Of
1: course, there's like, there's a, there's a mix there, but yeah. I think that there is a, there is a, a sort of, we will see more of that, whether it's because people are shirking or uh, or or not, and I think we'll see more masking in those. In you know, we'll see we'll see more masking at at times with respect to the flu and and all kinds of other stuff. So yeah, and
0: I, I think also I mean people have argued a lot about the effectiveness of masking, and there's there's arguments to be had there in both directions. But I think also one of the interesting questions is there's the difference between the effectiveness of a mask versus the effectiveness of a policy that requires people to mask cuz those are very different. And Absolutely. yeah cuz you can say there's something like a vaccine for example a vaccine could be and it is remarkably effective but how effective is it you know to have a policy about a vaccine well that depends how well it's adhered to and all these other variables that come into it and i think that's a lot of uh, a lot of these arguments also center around that.
1: Yeah i i agree i mean i think that basically like it like two things could simultaneously be true and probably are. One being that if you wear a well-fitting N95 mask, you are much, much less likely to get COVID or anything else because, you know, there's mask filtration and we can just, like see, you can see that in the lab. You can see that in, you know, the way, like you can be in a patient room with somebody and, you know, they can be sick and you don't get it because you're wearing this, you know, this high quality, this high quality mask. So that could be true. And it could also be true that as implemented mask mandates uh, make very little difference in terms of of spread of COVID, which you know I think probably is true. Whether it's no difference or a small amount of difference, it's certainly not anywhere close to as large as the difference between you wearing a, a high quality mask versus not in 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 an environment with somebody who's sick. So somehow, like we're having trouble separating those two those two things um, in in the data.
0: Yeah. You could also look at the data at different points in time. So you know, if you have, for example, like uh, two states, one of them has a mask mandate and one of them doesn't, let's assume they were similar at baseline, which is also not true, but let's assume they are. You can look at the data in the first month and maybe show that the, the state with the mask mandate had fewer infections. But then if you waited six months, it may have caught up to everybody that eventually blows through. And so there's so many ways to manipulate this, which is why, you know, people have these sort of preconceived beliefs about mandates about mass about whatever. They can cherry-pick data that's going to support what they believe based on where they take it from or at what point in time they take it from or how they interpret it, which has always been true in science. But that's we've never really had these debates in public about these scientific things and putting them on CNN. And so I think it's just gotten real it's got real ugly with all these, with with the data.
1: That has been very interesting for me. And I agree it has gotten ugly, you know, that all of a sudden everyone is much more in principle, inter- like people are much more interested in data and much more willing to sort of think about data and to engage with data. And they understand more what charts are and, and the idea that you would do some kind of analysis. And and that's, you know, that's been a a huge move in the last two years that I have seen as a person who who kind of writes about this. But at the same time, we're in such a, a sort of evolving and in some cases quite data poor environment that it is very easy for people to cherry pick the particular piece of evidence that they want that supports their thing. And, you know, as you say, with something like masks or really almost any of the kind of non-pharmaceutical interventions we thought about during COVID, there are ways to cut the data that show one thing and ways to cut the data that show that just gets weaponized in, in all of the different directions. And because our data literacy is actually at its fundamental core quite bad, it is hard for people to parse the, like, which of these two charts should I believe. You know, there's right. two similar looking people with two different charts on two different (laughs) television channels. And like, how do I know that like the blonde guy with this chart on Fox News is like more or less reliable than the other guy with the chart on the on the MSNBC? Like, how do I how do I differentiate those? That's really hard.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is partly what you do. And and actually, it's a good segue because I wanted to do the sort of we're going to let we're going to let Emily go back in time. And make all the decisions for everybody.
1: Amazing. Okay. I'm ready.
0: And the one hand, you could look at it, you know, where do we go right? Where do we go wrong? But it's, I'm not doing this in like to be judgmental about anything because, okay, whatever. I'm gonna say, based on your understanding of the data and what you've seen and what, you know, you've read, if you could go back in time, I'm asking if you would do things the same or different. So the first I'm gonna ask about, uh, because it's sort of the first thing that happened was the lockdowns. Right, sort of all Wait, the so same. Just
1: thing. so I understand, I I get to choose based on what I know now.
0: Yes, you get. Oh yeah, you, you know, okay. Based on what okay, you right. know now, okay. based on everything you know today. What if you could, you know, get, get in like a time machine okay. and go back two years? Right. So what would you have recommended first in the initial phase when the virus, you know, first hit the scene, and then sort of over the next, you know, year or two, uh, with lockdowns, uh, both you know home and then also with schools.
1: So, I think the when we sort of think about that initial period, it, actually, there was something we did really, really right was with this idea of of like flattening the curve, which put a lot of emphasis on the idea that we need to build hospital capacity. And so I think that wasn't wrong. I think part of part of what happened was was we sort of built the hospital capacity and then never in some ways like never let up on the kind of lockdown well, we let up eventually, but we didn't sort of let up linked to hospital capacity. so I think that, you know, building out the hospital capacity and and having a period of pretty extensive lockdowns while sort of hospital capacity was built out was a good idea. I think it's pretty clear we did not do anything close to the amount of lockdown that we needed at nursing homes. Mm -hmm. So things like nursing homes, assisted living facilities needed much more testing and much more kind of like restricted access at least for this initial period until we understood a little bit more about about the virus. Mm -hmm. I think looking back to X post, it was a mistake to close uh, to close schools for certainly for as long as we did. I also, you know, think that it would have been quite hard to continue sort of having schools open for at least some of the of the spring. So, you know, it wouldn't have been a good idea to reopen schools in, you know, May or June of, of 2020. I, you know, I think some people say, yes, I'm not sure. Maybe, depending a little bit on how we were doing and other things.
0: But come the fall of 2020. Oh, uh, come the yeah. fall
1: of 2020, yes. So come the fall of 2020, we should have had all schools open, fully in person, regular school, five days a week with math.
0: And is that because looking back in hindsight, I know that was actually your opinion at the time also, but looking back in hindsight, is that because we've realized better that the risk to kids from the virus is very low or because the harm of closing school was higher than we thought it would be?
1: So I think it's both of those things plus a third thing. So I think, you know, if we think about what we learned over time, you know, one is that the risk of kids was low. Although I think to be fair, we pretty much knew that Mm -hmm. in almost like at in March of 2020. Yeah, I don't think that we learned very (laughs) much about that uh, over time. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what we learned is that, the spread in schools was extremely limited mm-hmm. so based on these sort of even you know some of the data we collected but more than that these like careful contact tracing studies in a bunch of places showed that just there was just very very limited spread in schools particularly during the kind of like whole 2020 2021 school year like the that there was just not much spread at all do
0: you think because there was masking and all that stuff or just because it's not spread so well in kids
1: Probably both. So I think, you know, most of the really, most of the sort of really, really limited spread stuff we have did involve kids in masks. And so I think separating out, you know, like how was there more in places with more limited masking? You know, we did masking in most schools in the U.S. So but I I don't think it's just the, the masking. I think it was more that, you know, this is a controlled environment and, you know, people were being careful and kids are not super you know kids are just not super high risk and and you know they weren't spreading as much or whatever was the reason schools were just not places of a lot of spread so i think there was that and then the other thing we've learned over time is just how damaging school closures were for student learning for you know families ability to kind of put food on the table for kids mental health like all these things the sort of implications of school closures which people thought somehow we would be able to mitigate and and so on i just think were not mitigated. Mm-hmm. They were bad. So well,
0: yeah. And then, yeah. what about masking and social distancing?
1: Having spent a bunch of time talking to the guys who are obsessed with aerosolizing and ventilation and so on, I think we we missed the boat on the kind of ventilation versus social distancing business. So we spent a lot of time on like being distant from people, but actually physical distance is not is not important. And to that, to sort of the social distancing, which really became part of that. Uh, we should have been investing more in ventilation of Mm -hmm. indoor spaces, probably, you know, on the on the masking, I think we don't totally know, I think the randomized trial data suggests probably some small that, you know, mask mandates, like in the Bangladesh data suggests that, you know, mask mandates had some positive impact, you know, but not enormous.
0: If states were calling you uh, in the summer of 2020, and they said, should we go like Florida? Should we go like New York with masking? Right now, knowing what we know, which way would you go?
1: In the fall of 2020, I would have said, go like New York. Uh-huh. Like I would say now, the choice that I would have suggested in the fall of 2020 was go like New York. But I think we we failed to write sufficient off ramps mm. for that. Like
0: if rates drop or if the vaccine comes out, things if like rates that
1: drop the vaccine comes out. Yeah, I think part of what made masking so, you know, so contentious was the feeling that it would never end. And this sort of feeling like, you know, as we said, take them off, then we put them put them back on. And then the feeling of like, well, no matter what, we're always going to need to do this. And I think that people Really push back on that. So you know, again, it, it goes back to you know, I guess I think some of what we must have talked about you know two years ago, which is to sort of meet people. You can't ask people to do everything all the time. Yeah, right. And you need to pick a, you know, you're gonna you're gonna need to pick a set of things that are that are doable. You know, I think that masking probably is one of the more doable of the non-pharmaceutical interventions, and mm-hmm. and you know, with good quality mask can have some impacts. So that seems like something to do, but we made it something that was like, you're going to have to do this forever. And then I think people got uh, upset.
0: Yeah, and I think also when when there were these potential for off ramps and we've spoken about this before, they were sort of illogical that they're doing it based on like positive rates or total cases when, like we said, really, they should have focused on hospitalizations or deaths or, you know, something that. Matters right? Whether someone tests positive or not is not as relevant to whether they're sick. And also, the data is more poor because it depends who you test, right? If you test everybody, you know you have more number, you have more total cases and a lower percentage. And so everyone was doing it differently, and none of it made a ton of sense. And it was it was very frustrating. Like you know, I'd be like, all right, there's, there's many more cases. Like well, everyone's going to school and they're all getting tested. Of course, there's more cases. Like but this is ridiculous. So. Which is what I want to ask you at the next one, because I know that you feel very strongly about this. What should we have done with testing?
1: So I think with testing, we should have invested way more heavily in antigen testing. So we got totally like focused on PCR testing as a sort of gold standard, and I think that's because, from a diagnostic standpoint, you know, PCR testing is really, you know, is sort of the gold standard to detect small amounts of the virus and and so on. But I think it was also very clear early on that these antigen tests, these lateral flow tests, which are easy to use, which you can use, you know, in, in your, your house, are very good at detecting contagious levels of the, of the virus. Those were developed pretty early on. It took, I don't know, a, a, a year, more than a year, between the sort of initial development of things that you could have used in your house and your ability to, to you're even being allowed to use them in your house. It was many months before we even used them in schools. Like this just became a kind of total failure and a total failure of, of messaging. If we had done that faster, this would have been a place where we could, you know, help on the nursing home stuff. Like how do we get, uh, you know, how do we get antigen tests? So everybody who comes into a nursing home is antigen tested like every, you know, every every day before they before they come to work. That would have really improved our our situation and similarly you know giving people confidence to do things like going back to school you know we want to open all our schools in september of 2020 like tell everybody you know everybody has antigen tests and you know figure out how you're going to implement that it wouldn't be impossible you know the idea that it wasn't until february of 2022 that the government started sending these to people in the mail like that's that's just like it's crazy Particularly because, like all the, you know, like in all these universities were doing all this testing, and I mean, it just it felt like we just really fell apart there for a few different reasons. But right, we definitely right. fell. Apart. The
0: universities where everybody's young and healthy, they're getting tested twice a week, but at with place, PCR, yeah, tests. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, with PCR, with PCR, tests, PCR but, tests. But at, but in nursing I mean, homes, they're not doing that.
1: Exactly. That like that's we really need to protect the like, you know, the students who are only leaving their apartments to get their, you know, twice weekly PCR tests. But yet we're not somehow able to put, you know, antigen or pool testing into nursing home settings. I mean, it just was a really, you know, bizarre uh, organization of resources.
0: Yeah. And I also don't think it would have been too difficult for there to be some, you know, Effort to get random sampling, random testing to say what is the COVID rate in the community, like because it was all over the place. Nobody knows what it is because you know people are home; they're not getting tested, or everyone's getting tested, and just you know it's not that hard. They do this with polling, right? Yeah, <laughs> they do it all yeah. the time to you sample of you know four hundred people, and you know what's going on in the entire city. It's really not complicated from a from a logistical standpoint. I don't know why they didn't do it. It just it doesn't make any sense to me.
1: I'm not sure what happened. I think that they. You know, there was some sort of political stuff around testing inside the the CDC. I think there were some feelings that you know people had about accuracy versus uh, different you know different kinds of errors. Uh, you know, I think also a lot of these uh, organizations were pretty um, you know like not great at pivoting mm-hmm. um, and kind of and that and I think that that was an issue. And then of course, remember like in the sort of summer fall of 2020 even the the early winter you know the administration was not you know super focused on uh identifying cases of the coronavirus uh and and it wasn't like their their jam so i think you know while while the biden administration coming in didn't sort of fix everything the way that some of us maybe thought that they would using a magic wand uh it definitely i think that you know things would have looked a little different had they been had there been a different set of people sort of with a different set of incentives in the 2020 period,
0: right, or maybe before an elect, maybe before not an election year, maybe
1: if we're not an election year, exactly.
0: Yeah, it's really it's it's so interesting. All these things play into this because it, I mean, it changes, yeah. it changes everything, it changes people's perceptions, which changes you know their responses and the reality. It's really interesting stuff. What what do you? What do you think is going to happen moving forward? Now we're doing a uh, prediction, Emily. Now we're going forward. So we can pl- drop this podcast in two years. Wh- what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of years with all of this? Is this just going to sort of fade away into the sunset and it'll be like, you know, a flu where we get a, a booster, or a new vaccine every year, and we just sort of like move about our business? Or is this going to like annoy us and irritate us and we're going to argue about this for the next, you know, two, four, 10 years?
1: Yeah. So I think the question of I think that for me, that lies in whether we in the next two years or the next 10. So I think what we will ha- what will happen is, you know, and I think this part I'm basing on, you know, what people on sort of smarter people than I who do kind of viral evolution. I think the the kind of expected path is something like you know continued sort of winter surges, like with a you know like with a, any respiratory virus, like with with the flu, and probably you know a, a sort of moving towards a kind of booster in the fall system and whether that booster is specific to the variant that's you know in um that's in circulation or or not you know we'll have to see i mean actually when i in the summer of 2020 i did an interview with um in my newsletter of all places with Monsell, the ceo of moderna mm-hmm. and he basically was like okay like we're gonna have like you know we're gonna have a vaccine an mrna that does like flu, RSV, and, uh, and you know, the dominant COVID variant, mm-hmm. and you're going to get it every fall. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be great. And so like, maybe we're going there. <laughs> right. <laughs> then you're not going to have a job, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you'll still have a job, some people will be out of a job. Yeah, I think there's something like that. But we will sort of see these these surges. I think that will be true almost, you know, almost forever. We're not moving to to having no COVID. Over the next couple of years, I think this will continue to be a significant source of sort of discussion and angst as these waves come in and also as we work through a lot of the the things that are going to come out of, you know, the of the the social impact and also the health impact over the last year, you know, I think there's probably more discussion of long COVID than than there there needs to be, but there's no question that a reasonable number of people are, do experience have been experiencing this sort of long longer term disability effects of of infection, much more so people who got it unvaccinated, and that's something that the healthcare system will be dealing with. So there's a bunch of these like knock on effects that I think will mean that this is a th- this occupies more mental space over the next two years than it will you know seven years from now.
0: All right, and what are the airlines going to tell us? So we don't have to wear masks. Going back to my I think that
1: I think that will be next week. Oh, really? Or in next? I think that will be very soon.
0: Yeah, I just yeah. think that. And
1: I guess, I, I guess I it's, it's, a, and like, it's a federal mandate, no isn't it? Yeah. There's no, like, it's a federal mandate. I think that the federal government is not. So, like, going back to the issue of politics. Yeah. You know, I think that the, the Biden, the, the Democrats are quite worried about midterms and what for better or for worse, I think, perceive that some of these COVID restrictions, particularly the most visible ones, are not likely to serve them well in the midterm elections. Hmm. And they are therefore, I think, going to be eager to remove some of them sooner rather than later.
0: Fascinating. Wow.
1: That's my, that's my, that's my like sort of social science political (laughs) economy hat.
0: (laughs) Wow. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast again. We love having you. It's always great to talk to my listeners love hearing from you and most of them are you know followers of you anyways but it's really interesting and i just think that this has been so cool and yeah and i think it's going to be awesome to play this back to back with us two years ago because honestly they sound almost exactly the same it's really (laughs) remarkable
1: like i don't know do we do we think it's good i don't know i don't know you know I was like, maybe, maybe that's good. Maybe that's
0: not good. <laughs> it's good for you. It's, you know. It's
1: good for me, perhaps. perhaps.
0: Awesome. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Uh,
1: thank you so much. It's always it was always really great to talk.
0: Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options, For an effective treatment plan paid sponsors of the podcast are not involved in the creation of the podcast or any of the content support for our
1: sponsors should not be interpreted as medical advice from the podcast the host or the guest